Good morning, Mount Horam. Good to see all of you. It's so good to be here, and thank you for the uh, beautiful hospitality we've received this week as Asbury's been down here to share what God's doing at Asbury, and thank you for all you do for us, and we, we just are so happy to be here. Uh, I know I've been into many churches over the years, and um, you know, when you walk into a church, you're given many things. I've been given um, bulletins, I've been given Bibles, I've been given handshakes and hugs, but only at Mount Horeb I given earplugs. <laughs> and of course, I asked the, the very kind uh, usher who gave me the earplugs, I said, um, is this for the you know, worship bands that get a little loud? Oh, no, no, this is for the sermon. <laughs> so now's the time to put them in. Anyway, it's, uh, it's great to be here, seriously. Thank you for so much for opportunity. Uh, our theme today is the Word of God. And I wanna read to you a passage from Nehemiah chapter eight. Uh, this comes at a very crushing time in Israel's history when they are uh, looking at the city burned to the ground, the temple's destroyed, the walls are destroyed, and they have to do this rebuilding. And this is a high moment when they are proclaiming God's word in that situation. Nehemiah chapter 8, 1 to 10, let's actually start in the last phrase of chapter 7. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and women and all others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on the high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on the right side stood Mattatiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Masaiah. On his left were Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashadavanah, Zechariah, and Meshalem. Aren't you glad you're not reading scripture today? <laughs> Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them on the platform. As he opened it, people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shepatiah, Hodiah, Masaiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts today to hear your word and receive it with joy. Lord, speak to us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
in April of 1739, uh, John Wesley was preaching in an upstairs room in London. Now you have to realize this is the time in the 18th century, which we of course are recipient of being Methodist, where God moved mightily and we now call this the Great Awakening. And there were great crowds coming uh, to be attentive to the preaching of God's word. And Wesley uh, described in his journey that, journal that night that how the room was so full of people and the weight was so great and they were in an upstairs room that the supporting post beneath the room collapsed and broke and fell away. And thankfully, no one was hurt that night, but it was one of those things he could never forget because it was a big shock as that floor sunk down on them that night. I don't know how you feel about that story, but to me, it's almost symbolic of what it means to be a Christian today. Uh, so much of what has long uh, supported our culture and our society seems to have given away. And we have so many challenges that are facing us as the people of God in the midst of this culture and what it means to be a Christian at a time like this. And this particular text before us also comes at a remarkable time. And I love the fact that God's word uh, allows us to see the people of God being the people of God in a wide variety of situations. For example, we can read in the, in the word where the people of God are there at the banks of the Red Sea and the Lord has just opened the Red Sea. They've gone through, he's judged Egypt and we see them literally standing on the banks of the Red Sea with a tambourine in their hand. I will sing unto the Lord for he has you know, triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider is thrown into the sea. We can see them in that moment of joy. We can see them at Mount Sinai uh, as they're there with that, you know, the trembling people and the, the earthquake and the fire and the, and the, uh, the, the, the rain, the, the horrible rain that came, but God's awesomeness to sit upon Mount Sinai and they heard and they received the 10 commandments. Can you imagine being there at that time when God gave the 10 commandments to Mount Sinai? And by the way, Mount Sinai has another name. You know what that name is for Mount Sinai? Mount Horeb, yeah, you've got to know that. That's a requirement for this church, right? You have to know that. <laughs> Mount Sinai, also known as Mount Horeb. But we see God's people. We see, uh, we see uh, for example, Isaiah uh, in a very hard time. He goes into the temple and he gets a vision of God's presence in the temple. And he looks up and he sees the six-winged seraphs flying and crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And he hears the Lord's voice, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? This is Isaiah 6.1. He says, here am I, send me. We were brought into that intimate moment of God calling Isaiah. But not just, you know, glorious public celebrations or, or God thundering down on Mount Sinai or Isaiah's vision of the temple. God's word also brings us into those intimate moments. Like when that little 12-year-old boy, I don't know if we have any 12-year-olds here today, but in the Bible, a little 12-year-old boy named Samuel is lying in bed and he hears God speaking his name. And he hears that whisper, Samuel, Samuel. He got up and told the adults about it. And they said, no, 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 you're just dreaming. Go back, go back to sleep. Samuel, Samuel. And finally, the third time he realized, they realized God was calling him. And you know, Samuel, we're brought into the intimacy of that little boy's bedroom as God whispered his name and called him. I believe there are people here today that God is whispering your name and calling you. 
we'll get to, we'll get brought into that in the word of God. And, and Samuel becomes the first of the line of the prophets and all the great prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea and Joel, Amos, Abadiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, all those great prophets come from this moment when God whispers the name Samuel. This is amazing how God brings us into those words in that moment. We also have to realize God's word is God's word even in the really difficult times. And there's this really, really arresting passage in, in the book of Judges where it says, in the third chapter, it says, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. I can imagine if you're called to be a, the people of God at that time, when you just couldn't find the word of God being properly preached and it was really, really hard to hear God's word clearly proclaimed. And you know, you have to be the people of God during that time too, don't you? And one of the things, another time that really strikes me, and I always feel this when I read it, is when that, the Philistines had stolen the Ark of the Covenant. And from their point of view, that was like the worst possible national calamity. The Ark of God represented the very presence of God to the people of Israel. And at that time, a woman gave birth to a child and her anguish was so great that according to the Bible, she called that child Ichabod, which in Hebrew means the glory has departed from Israel. That sense that you know, God just doesn't show up. We, we don't know where he is. It's like the supporting post has fallen away. And God calls us to be the people of God right where we are. And there's that great moment in the Lord of the Rings where at one point Frodo says, you know, I, I can't believe I'm, I'm having to live through this and go through this horrible, difficult journey. And, and Gandalf wisely says to little Frodo, says, you know, you cannot choose the times that you live in. You can only choose to do what, be faithful in the times that you are given. We are, we are called to be faithful in the time that we are given and we have to be faithful in this time. And you know, it's hard. Historians don't know what to call the time that we're living in. Everyone seems to be agreed that we are in some kind of seam of history between two great epochs of history. And it's difficult living in a seam time. On the one hand, you know, we're clearly in a, uh, you know, kind of post-communist, post-enlightenment, some say post-Christian world. Uh, our culture is definitely in a period of trial and a uh, period of difficulty and challenge for Christian identity. And so all of that creates a lot of angst and, and difficulty for us. How do we you know what to call the world that's coming upon us? What does God have waiting for us? And what's it mean to be a Christian for us? There was a time when, I even remember the expression where people would say, when someone moved into a town, they'd say, you know, have you found your church home? It was kind of the assumption that a family would be looking for a church home. And that was a normal part of what people would do. It was a time in our culture when, you know, literally the steeple bells would ring and people would come with their families and, and walk come to the church. It was just part of the whole cultural uh, period. And then as the cult, our cult became more unstable and more challenges, people in places like South Carolina said, well, that's a problem out there in California. That's a problem up there in New England. And I lived in New England for 11 years. I know the challenges of New England. Or that's a problem up Pacific, Pacific Northwest. If you live up in Seattle, you got a problem up there, but not in South Carolina. 
But then you see the stress and the challenges in places like South Carolina. And you realize there's a lot of challenges in our culture. If you look at the generational transformation, if you are in that builder generation, this is the generation that fought World War II, the the so-called greatest generation. That amazing generation was 65% self-identified as Christians. If you go down to my generation, I'm part of the millennial, I mean the, uh, the, the baby boomer generation, the baby boomers self-identified around 35 to 40% Christian. You go down to generation X and it's about 25% Christian. And if you go down to the millennial generation, it is around 12 to 15% identify as Christian. Now that is a massive cultural change taking place in America. That means there is a huge growing need to represent the gospel in fresh ways to people who otherwise would never walk in the door of the church. In many churches, the only real evangelistic strategy they have is basically summed up by this, be nice to visitors. You know, give them a bag with like their stuff and maybe your mug in it. They don't want your mug. (laughs) They may not ever walk in the door of your church. And so the point is we have to go out to where they are and find ways to reconnect the gospel where they are. This is the same time we're in. This is the challenging time we're in to find new ways to present the gospel to those in our culture. And we can learn a lot from Nehemiah because Nehemiah lived at a time when everything seemed to be going crazy. The temple was burned dead to the ground. The walls were destroyed. They're living in exile. They're just coming back from exile They've been singing laments. This is when many of the Psalms were written, the, the Psalms of lament. But lament is never a bad thing for the church. Lament is a good thing because lament is the mother of hope. Lament makes you go back and read scripture more carefully again. Lament always brings you to listen to God more carefully. And that's exactly what happened in our text. And Nehemiah, they, they get together in this experience and if you think about what happens on this passage, because we think about Nehemiah, we often think about this book about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. That's the main source of the, of the book. But they also rebuild something else, and which is our text today. We're told in verse four that they rebuilt the pulpit. It wasn't like a pulpit like, like this. It was, a, it was a high wooden platform from which they would proclaim God's word and re initiate, re-proclaim the word of God. And I think in some ways it's symbolic of the, the challenge and the, the great opportunity, which is ours as the people of God today. We have to symbolically rebuild the pulpit. That's to say, rebuild what it means to once again address the gospel to this generation. What's it mean to be faithful to God's word and to do it faithfully? And as they do this, they have this, when they get up and read God's word, we're given this long list of names, which I, of course, read to you earlier, that we find these Levites. And these are names you've never heard of. Jeshua, Bani, Sherebia, Jamin, Akub, Shevatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah. These are people that you've never heard of. And I love that song that we sang, you know, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody who changed my life, who saved my soul. What we're, what we're learning here is that the gospel is not 
really, really brought to a culture by the like, famous platform speakers and people like that. It's done by you. It's done by ordinary people who are called by God to embody his life out into the world. We are God's voice in the world. We're God's hands and feet in the world. And the only gospel most people in this culture will hear is what comes through your life. Because they're not yet walking in the back, back door of this church. They're out in their, in their homes and their you know, pubs and everywhere else. In Asbury, we, we're, we're, we have been training. We now just passed our 1,000 mark. We've trained 1,000 new church planters. And we've asked these students to go out. And, and many of them are connected to churches like this. But in addition to this, they are planting churches in brand new places. Area, things you never think about as a normal place for churches to be started in order to reach people who otherwise would never hear God's word. We have churches, of course, in, in a lot of coffee houses all across this country. We have churches in like Home Depot break rooms. We have churches in uh, all kinds of places, uh, Starbucks, everything imaginable. And one of my favorites, one of our students, when I first saw him, when he came into our, our community, uh, I couldn't help, but he was just like very, I don't know how to say it, tattooed. He had like a lot of tattoos. I mean, you know, everybody, not you know, young people today have like a tattoo here and there, but he had a, like a lot of them. And like, by the way, occasionally people tell me, people say to me, are you worried about people getting tattoos today? I said, no, I'm not worried at all. You're not worried about, no, I don't want a tattoo. I said, why? Well, because the surest sign that tattoos will die out is because this generation has them. Right? It's the nature of human generations. But this guy was very tattooed. And so I said to him, uh, he told me his story. He had a very dramatic conversion from a very, very challenging background. And he said to him, he said to, said to me, he said, uh, when he graduated, he said, you know, I'm going to go out and I'm going to start a church in, uh, in a tattoo parlor in Florida. And he's now established several churches in tattoo parlors because that's the world he knows. And he knows how to bring the word of God to people in every kind of situation. And part of what we find in the, in the gospel, whenever there's this new great awakening, you find the gospel gets brought to new places. If you know John Wesley's life, he did things which at the time were considered scandalizing. He brought the guy, he preached in graveyards. He would always show up at the brickyards and the coal mines. And so much of the great awakening happened by preaching the gospel in those kind of places. That's what happens when God awakens his people. We look out at the world missionally and we see the opportunity that we have to bring the word of God to people in places that would otherwise never, ever hear it. And this is what Nehemiah does right there with his, his people, the, these uh, Levites that helped him to reestablish and reproclaim God's word. When John Wesley uh, left first for Georgia, he came to the, the new world and came not far from here, of course, and, you know, when he came here, he came here to be a great evangelist. And he left in 1735, he got here. And if you know his story, when he got here, it was complete disaster. He had several years here. And finally, he left uh, in, in 1737, in the middle of the night. And he wrote in his diary, on the way back across on the boat, he wrote in his diary these words, uh, I came to Georgia to convert the Indians. This is, they still call Native Americans Indians. I came to Georgia to convert the Indians, but oh my God, who will convert me? 
This is a man who's already an ordained member of the clergy. But he's saying, God, who will convert me? He, he didn't really have, in fact, the, the, the ship had been caught in a big storm. And in the middle of this huge storm, everyone was sure the ship was gonna go down. He heard some Moravians singing. And he made way, his way to the Moravians and he found them in this little cabin singing hymns to God. He couldn't believe it. In the middle of the storm, when everyone was sure the ship was gonna go down, they didn't have the weights and balances that we have in ships today. You can imagine that ship was rocking and rolling. And he said to them, don't you fear death? And they said, no, because we have faith in Jesus. And they asked John Wesley, do you have faith in Jesus? And he said, uh, yes, I have faith that Jesus Christ died for the world. And he said, but has he died for your life? And he says, he said, yes, but he wrote in his diary that night, I said, yes, but I fear I spoke those words in vain. It's after Wesley came back to, the, to uh, England that he went down to this little prayer meeting, again, a Moravian prayer meeting, and he heard someone, by that was a lay person named William Holland, who was a painter, who was, had a painting contracting business, we'd say, who painted buildings and houses and all. This, this painting, ordinary contractor painter that you've never heard of, William Holland, you've never heard of his name. He read that night Martin Luther's preface to, to Paul's epistle to the Romans. And as he heard God's word read, as Luther quoted it, John Wesley says, I felt my heart strangely warmed I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given to me that my sins, even mine, were taken away. And I was delivered from the law of sin and death. And it was that point that, that Wesley's entire life was transformed. He had been not only coming to church, but he had been absolutely an, an ordained clergy, but he had never actually heard the gospel. He had never been transformed by Christ. Before Aldersgate, Wesley only used the word faith seven times in all of his preaching. And it was all, you know, kind of generic faith of the church and all that. It was suddenly his life was transformed. His sermons were filled with the power of personal conversion, personal transformation by the word of God. A lot of people grew up in their lives, grew up in the church, and they've never actually heard God's word. They've never been transformed by the power of Christ. So part of our mission today in rebuilding the church is not only this amazing challenge to bring gospel out into the world, into our culture, and represent the gospel to our culture in ways they can hear it, but also for ourselves to rediscover the power of the gospel, the power of the good news of Jesus Christ in our own lives. And this is, of course, what this text brings to us, this power of them. Is they, and these are names you've never heard of. We need more Bonnies and Sharibias and Jamans and Hodias with your names and my name sharing the gospel in new ways as we rebuild the, per, the word of God in our own life. You know, I think about when, uh, when God uh, first on the eighth day of creation, if he had said, you know, let there be Zondervan or something, we would have had some great books published. I'm sure Moses would have published a book, you know, um, I don't know, How to Pass Through Your Red Sea, you know, or, uh, you know, The Purpose Driven uh, Nation uh, with a study guide, of course. Uh, these kind of books could be published. But, you know, today we give these fancy names, but Nehemiah's book might be called, you know, 
life amidst the rubble? And what's it like to live in a rebuilding phase? You know, what's the title of the book of our lives? What, what, are, what is the project of your generation? The project of our generation is rebuilding Christianity. Not simply the walls of Jerusalem, but the, the walls of our faith to recapture the power of God's word. The Bible says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. This is the great singular truth that God's word is what transforms the world. When God said at the dawn of creation, let there be light, that light still shines to this day. We are illumined every day this morning as we woke up by the light that God started at the dawn of creation. When, when uh, Jesus said to Lazarus, you know, Lazarus, come forth, that, that power of his word to, to actually overturn death, our greatest enemy is death. Yet Jesus has overturned it in his resurrection. And that word you know, goes down to every tombstone, every graveyard, every coffin for those who put their faith in Christ. And we too will rise again. We too will defeat death. This is the good news of the gospel. We have eternal hope because of Jesus Christ. And this is the great, great thing that God is doing. And we have the privilege of sharing this new life which comes to us through Jesus Christ and how God not only has, have we've heard the God, we've been transformed by it. You know, Wesley was never, never convinced that the only thing you should do is respond to the gospel and be forgiven for your sins. He said, no, we are about seeing your life transformed into holiness and righteousness so that your life is a stunning alternative for what the world has. And the world is always hungry for holiness. They're always hungry for those whose lives are rightly ordered before God, who've heard God's word, I mean, shaped and formed by the image of Christ. And this is the power of God's word for our lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It means that we die to our old life and we receive this new life in Jesus Christ. And for us to live in a day when we can once again clearly teach God's word, what it really says, not distortions of God's word, not people trying to talk around God's word, but letting God's word really shape us and form us is one of the great opportunities which is ours in this generation. I wanna close with this story about the Titanic because you know in April 15th, 1912, uh, the 108 years ago, the Titanic sank to the bottom of the ocean and of course, it was in that day, the, the number one, the largest you know, calamity, human calamity in the history of the world. Thousands went to the bottom of the ocean. And of course, like people do, they were determined to find out what caused this huge ship to sink. Uh, the bosun who, you know, I'm sure you know the story, the bosun, uh, when one of the, before they left the Belfast Harbor uh, said, you know, uh, Will this ship sink? And uh, he famously said, uh, ma'am, uh, even God can't sink this ship. That was a mistaken thing to say. Uh, but this was a ship that was uh, built with, you know, hardwood floors and, and brass faucets in the sinks and beautiful chandeliers. It was the, this was the story of the, the time of the, you know, when they were building these massive luxury liners and they, they had these crushing schedules and they had 
you know, just as child labor, a lot of things happened to produce these amazing ships. And so when it went down, they want to know why. And they, they did, of course, many speculations about why it went down. And they, they had ideas that it was because the rudder was faulty or because of poor communications or happened or because the way they hit the iceberg, all these things. But when they actually discovered the Titanic, and as you maybe recall, when they discovered it about a decade ago, the Titanic was actually located two and a half miles below the surface of the ocean. I mean, this was a huge challenge to find it and then to go have a look at it. And they have these crafts now, of course, they can go down because the pressure is enormous at that level and go down to the bottom of the ocean and to examine the Titanic, which that's now been done many times. And they were surprised to find that the Titanic was not, didn't have like any gaping hole in it. Oh my goodness, the, you know, they hit the iceberg and the iceberg blasted a hole in the side. That didn't happen. There's nothing like that in the, in the shell, the, the hulk of the ship. Instead, it looked like somebody had taken a zipper and just, you know, zipped down the side of it. Eventually, six compartments were flooded and it, and it sank. And they went back and looked at all the records of the Titanic and they found out that during that time period, this was the, uh, the White Star Liner uh, built the Titanic. They were in competition against the Cunard Company to produce these great ships. This is the Belfast Shipping Yards. And there was not enough high quality iron available in order to produce the rivets. And they wanted to keep on schedule and they decided to use second rate rivets. This would be rivets that were mixed with slag in order to make them go further. And so the Titanic was actually built with substandard, uh, you know, non-unapproved rivets. And they actually now have brought up uh, 49 rivets from the bottom of that ocean, two and a half miles down, to examine those rivets. And they found out exactly what it was. And so the Titanic sank because of second-rate rivets. I mean, it just doesn't seem like a very impressive reason, but that's, it's, like a, it's like the O-ring, you know, with the Challenger. It's something you would not suspect, but that's what happened. And there were engineers at the time, by the way, who screamed out about it, but they weren't listened to. I think at times when we look at the life of the church, we wonder what is it that makes a church strong? What is it that enables a church like yours or anyone's church to be faithful in your generation? to live in the times that you've been called to live in. Not the time we wish we had, but the time we're actually been given. What's it mean to be faithful in this time? And so many times churches will really put their store on like, you know, how, uh, you know, symbolically speaking, how well our floors are hardwood or the chandeliers or, you know, the brass faucets. Rather than realizing what really makes this church strong are the rivets. And the rivets for a church is the word of God, the commitment to the supremacy of Christ, and the deep burden to bring this good news to the ends of the earth, starting right here in Lexington, South Carolina. This is the great truth of this message that comes to us. When they had to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the people of God, in, the, in this case, it's the 5th century B.C., they did it the same way we have to do it, through faithful preaching of God's word, faithful instruction, 
sharing God's word. This is the great opportunity which is ours. And may God help you, enable you to be faithful in this generation. May God help you to never forget that Mount Horeb will be strong and will be vibrant only if one thing continues on here, and that is your commitment to the rivets, to God's word, to who Jesus Christ is, who alone changes lives, and your burden to bring this gospel to the ends of the earth. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness, and Lord, that you yourself have called us to be your light in the world. Lord, may your word enliven us and speak to us. May this church find new ways to proclaim your word through word and deed to a culture which is desperately in need to rehear the gospel. May you open doors that have long be shut. May you open hearts that have long be shut. And many, many of you here today have children who strayed from the Lord. Lord, open their heart this day. Lord, do a new work in their life this day. Lord, there are many, many who are here today that have doors that are shut in their face in terms of their opportunity to witness at work or school or at home. Lord, open those doors. And may this church be given a fresh opportunity to be faithful to your word in this generation. We ask this all in Jesus' precious name, the word made flesh. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you all. Thank you so much.